Canada, the Great White North, also sometimes called the Just Society, a land first settled by humans between 16,500 and 13,500 BCE, then visited by Norsemen around 900 CE or so, then, quote, discovered by Europeans in the late 15th century with the city of St. John's in Newfoundland, founded in 1497. It's a democracy, but also technically a monarchy still ruled over by the British crown. Aside from French, they speak a variety of English that's quite similar to that spoken in the U.S. In fact, in many ways, Canada resembles their unruly neighbor to the south, being a more reasonable and measured, if significantly colder weather-wise, variant on European colonized North America. More reasonable, but not always 100% reasonable. Though it's hardly the conspiracy incubator the U.S. is, Canada has its fair share of people with questionable reasoning skills and or motivations. We'll take a look at some Canada-specific conspiracy theories in this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Oh, oh Canada. Canada! Incidentally, this episode is by request. A fan from Canada reached out and, when asked what she'd like to hear, she said she'd like to hear about some Canadian conspiracy theories. So, here you go. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Horton hears an A. There's a joke that when Canadians die, they simply respawn to the nearest Tim Hortons, which is a very popular quick-serve restaurant chain specializing in coffee and donuts, but also sandwiches, burgers, and more. Upon respawning, they will receive a double-double, which is a coffee with two creams and two sugars, with two teaspoons of maple syrup and ten Timbits. This is what Tim Hortons calls frosted donut holes. If rehabilitation is needed to readjust to their new bodies, the respawn Canadians will be sent to play hockey with a Mountie riding a moose. When reintegrated back into life, they just become normal Canadians, or as normal as Canadians can be. How can this be? Because Justin Trudeau, their Prime Minister, is a time-traveling lizard who brought a Buddhist deity to Canada in order to reincarnate the entire Canadian population and create a greater Canadian co-prosperity sphere. It's all very amusing, and the mention of Tim Hortons is especially Canadian. It's incredibly popular. There are 3,577 Tim Hortons locations serving 32.2 million residents, or one for every 10,693 Canadians. For comparison, consider there's one McDonald's for every 24,558 Americans. This means that the spread of Tim Hortons is over twice as dense. 
But with so much good coffee available, how is it that this is the stuff that Canadians return to again and again? Could it be tiny amounts of cocaine? Maybe the wax paper inside the cups contained trace amounts of nicotine, addicting people to the coffee. Both of these were rumors that have been floated about in newspapers and online over the years. Now, while the cocaine bit is an oft-repeated joke, it turns out that trace amounts of nicotine were, in fact, found in Tim Horton's paper cups. However, those reports are not 100% accurate. In 2017, a study conducted by researchers at the University of Montreal found that some paper products, including coffee filters, tea bags, and paper cups, contain trace amounts of a chemical sometimes used as a flavoring agent in food products and which is also found in tobacco smoke. However, the study did not find any actual nicotine in the paper cups. In 2018, another study conducted by researchers at the same university did manage to find some trace amounts of nicotine in some paper cups, but it's important to note that the levels of nicotine were extremely low and unlikely to pose any kind of health risks to consumers. It is worth noting that Tim Hortons has stated its paper cups are made with virgin paper fibers and do not contain any recycled materials, which could potentially be a source of contaminants. Additionally, the company has stated it regularly tests its products to ensure they meet safety standards and has not found any health risks associated with its paper cups. So, relax already, eh? Little, Little Potato! potato. This is the nickname of the current PM, Justin Trudeau, who got on a 2016 visit to China. Apparently, Xiao Trudeau is Little Potato in Mandarin and sounds a little bit like his name. So while those Tim Hortons gags have been around for a while, the part about the current PM, Justin Trudeau, being a Buddhist time-traveling lizard is fairly new. Trudeau's only been in office since 2015, right around the time social media and conspiracy theories decided to really turn it up to 11. Justin was born on Christmas Day, 1971, son of former Canadian PM Pierre Trudeau, who served from 1968 to 1984 with a brief interruption in 1979. Justin was a famous baby, seemingly destined for 24 Sussex Drive in Ottawa, which is where the PM lives. But in recent years, a number of suspicions have arisen about Little True, as he is sometimes known in his homeland, like that he is really the child of Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. After all, his mother, Margaret Sinclair, was kind of a flower child and an activist with pretty hard left leanings. Maybe so far left that she actually went to Cuba and hooked up with El Jefe Maximo when the Trudeaus went to that country for a holiday in early 1971. And then eight and a half months later, out came little Justin. And of course, if he is the son of a communist, why then he himself must also be a communist? Some people muse online as if it's genetic. You want more proof? Look at those eyebrows. They're strangely thick and lush. This was noted during the federal election in 2015, with some people saying those crazy face caterpillars were proof that he was Castro's kid. But others claimed, no, those are fake eyebrows, glued onto his head to make him look more striking. Some internet chatter said it draws your attention to his eyes. He says his eyebrows have always been thick and he uses no products on them. That's just how they are. 
The Castro claims resurfaced again and again during the COVID-19 crisis and the Canada version of the Freedom Convoy. The fact that the Trudeaus did not go to Cuba in 1971, but in 1976, after Little True was born, does not deter those who push this rumor. They simply say, okay, Justin is five years younger than he claims to be then. Even Joe Rogan has said that maybe the current Canadian PM should take a DNA test to put people's minds at ease. He later said he was joking, but was he? One of the reasons Lil Potato has had some folks looking for ways to discredit him is that he used the War Measures Act during the COVID-19 lockdown, only the fourth time it had ever been used in Canadian history and the first time since his father had used it during the 1970 October crisis, just a little over a year before the Little Potato was born. Actually, to be fair, Justin Trudeau used the Emergencies Act, not the War Measures Act. The two are similar, but they're not exactly the same. Calling Occupants, a song by the Canadian space rock prog rock band Klaatu, which itself is part of a conspiracy theory that says that when the Beatles broke up, they secretly reformed in Canada as Klaatu. This is explored in detail in our very first episode. On October 5th, 1970, members of the Front de Libération du Québec or FLQ, a Québécois separatist movement, kidnapped British diplomat James Cross from his home in Montreal. Five days later, on October 10th, they kidnapped Quebec Cabinet Minister Pierre Laporte off his front lawn while he was playing football with his nephew. They wanted to swap Cross and Laporte for fellow FLQers who'd been imprisoned. The government was not terribly keen on dealing with a group that they considered now terrorists, and the FLQ was not keen on dealing with people they saw as occupiers and imperialists, and the talks broke down. On October 17th, a week after the second kidnapping, Laporte's body was discovered in the trunk of a car parked in a Montreal suburb out near the airport. He'd been strangled to death. Police were contacted later that day by the FLQ, who said they had executed the, quote, Minister of Unemployment and Assimilation, and they would likewise do the same to Cross unless 23 of their fellows, who they termed political prisoners, were released. And also, they all wanted a plane to go to Cuba or Algeria and half a million dollars in cash on board. And they also wanted the name of the informer who'd ratted out an FLQ cell earlier in the year and... They wanted their manifesto published either in book form or in the newspapers, which, among other things, specifically said that Pierre Trudeau was, quote, a queer. The federal government of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau decided instead to invoke the War Measures Act, which gave the police sweeping powers to arrest and detain individuals without charge. Civil liberties could be suspended. The War Measures Act had only been used twice before, in 1914 when World War I broke out, and in 1939 when World War II broke out. This would be the first time it would be used during peacetime. The federal government moved troops into Quebec and arrests aplenty were made, 497 people in all. The crisis finally ended on December 28th with the release of the FLQ prisoners in exchange for the safe return of James Cross, who had been in FLQ custody for over two and a half months. The October crisis, as it is known, remains one of the most significant events in Canadian history and had a lasting impact on Quebec's relationship with the rest of Canada. The crisis also had broader implications for civil liberties in Canada, as the government's use of the War Measures Act was controversial and raised questions about the limits of state power during times of crisis. Miles, Miles from, from our, our home. home. That's a 1998 album by the Canadian alt-folk, alt-country group Cowboy Junkies. 
Many of the conspiracy narratives that thrive in the U.S. are also popular in Canada. You got your sovereign citizen movement and other pseudo-law folks, mainly people that don't like paying taxes. You got people who believe in reptilians. You got quite a few contrail people. You got some Holocaust deniers, notably Jim Keekstra, Malcolm Ross, Paul Fromm, and Baroness Birdwood, who was born in The Peg, which is slang for the city of Winnipeg, but moved to Britain when she was 10, worked for the BBC Gramophone Library, the Entertainment's National Service Association, and the Red Cross, and then went on to become, quote, the largest individual distributor of racist and anti-Semitic material in the UK. That's in the words of Nick Lowell's writing for Searchlight magazine on the occasion of her death in 2000. You also have a fair number of false flag claims about various attacks. Some of those acts of violence have taken place south of the border, but some happen north of the 49th parallel. Like the Parliament Hill attack in the capital of Ottawa. On October 22, 2014, Michael Zahoff Bilbo, a drifter and addict, walked up to an on-duty guard, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, at the National War Museum and shot him dead with a rifle. He then drove the 400 meters to the Parliament building where he got out of his Toyota, hijacked a military vehicle, drove it into the building, and got out. A constable grabbed him, but Zahaf Bilbao shot him in the foot. He then ran down the corridor, shooting haphazardly until he was cornered, and in the final shootout with security personnel, died after being shot 31 times. It's all on camera, and the entire story is well known, that of a junkie with no fixed income or home, who was also a Muslim, and who snapped one day and decided to go down in a blaze of glory. This attack was the worst since 1966, when another troubled man who'd fallen on hard times, Paul Chartier, decided that somehow members of parliament were to blame for his being investigated for fraud and him needing to file for bankruptcy. So, he brought a dynamite bomb into parliament and lit it in the public bathroom, planning to throw it into the MP's chamber. But the fuse burned too fast and it exploded just as he was walking out of the toilet, killing him and damaging the restroom. After the 2014 attack, which was dubbed an act of terrorism, security was strengthened and Parliament Hill got a new security force. Aha! said some conspiracists. That was the point of the whole thing, wasn't it? Zahaf Bilbo was an innocent patsy, an excuse for the increased security measures now in place and any day now Trudeau was going to declare martial law and strip away Canadians' freedoms. Of course, this never happened. Canadians also started having a spirited public debate about radicalization and domestic terrorism. Why, that's the sort of thing that happens down in the U.S., not here. But even in a country like Canada, where there are comparatively few incidents like this, you will find people who spout the false flag line. And sometimes a Canadian infected with certain mind worms jumps the border into the United States. At 2.30 in the morning on October 28th, 2022, what is it with Canadians freaking out in October anyway, David Lepap, a Canadian who'd overstayed his visa in the U.S., went to the San Francisco home of Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, with the intention of holding her hostage until she came clean about the whole QAnon thing that he believed was absolutely true and told him all the dirty secrets about the stolen 2020 election and whatever other bees were buzzing around in his bonnet. He had quite a few of them. He'd been very active online promoting various sexist ideas, anti-Semitic ideas, no that COVID vaccines were evil and had chips in them, and so on and so forth. He had eaten heartily from the conspiracy buffet. 
DePat broke into the house through some glass doors, which woke Paul Pelosi, Nancy's aged husband. Paul explained that Nancy wasn't there because she was in Washington, D.C., but DePat said he'd wait, apparently unfamiliar with how far apart the nation's capital and San Francisco are. For the record, it's about 2,900 miles or 4,600 kilometers. Paul then called 911, saying he had an intruder, but nothing untoward was going on right now, so uh, I don't really know what to do. Paul Pelosi and the 911 dispatcher chatted for a while, and DePape himself actually took part in the conversation, offering up his name and other personal details. After DePape finally made Pelosi end the call, police were dispatched to the house. They arrived mere moments later, just in time to see 82-year-old Paul Pelosi and 42-year-old DePape in the entryway near the front door fighting over a hammer. DePape then hit Pelosi with it in the head once. Police apprehended him and an ambulance was called. Police found a bag DePape had brought with him that had a rope, zip ties, duct tape, and a bunch of other things, as well as a list of additional targets. Apparently, he had planned to have a busy night. He pled not guilty at his first hearing, but then called local TV station KTVU, Channel 2, and told them that he probably should have been, quote, better prepared, and he apologized to all his fellow QAnoners that he was, quote, so sorry I didn't get more of them. Snakes, Snakes and, and arrows. arrows. That's a 2007 album by the Canadian rock group Rush. Yes, they are still around. So that while there is some cross-border traffic in this stuff, most well-known conspiracy theories that originate in Canada tend to stay in Canada. For ages, Canadians have been quietly grousing that the NHL is biased against Canadian teams. The league has its headquarters in New York, and that is why no Canadian team has won the Stanley Cup since 1993, when it went to the Montreal Canadiens. The American overlords prioritize U.S. teams. They also tend to put Canadian teams in early rounds of the playoffs, which means there's more of a chance they'll get knocked out. Hockey fans note that between 1927 and 1993, 41 of 66 finals went to Canadian teams, or 62%, whereas all 27 of the finals since the headquarters was moved to New York have gone to U.S. teams. What's going on there, huh? Large, more powerful countries and or forces keeping Canada down is a fairly common trope in the Great White North. Take the tale of the Arvo Arrow. The cutting-edge Arvo Canada CF-105 Arrow Delta-Winged Jet Interceptor was considered an engineering marvel and a symbol of Canadian innovation and technological prowess. By all accounts, this was the premier plane of its type anywhere. It was able to maintain speeds of Mach 2 above 50,000 feet and was on track to become THE main interceptor for the Royal Canadian Air Force in the coming decades. The UK had also expressed interest in buying a two and, hey, maybe they could even talk the Americans into a deal. But then suddenly, the program was cancelled on February 20th, 1959, a day which would come to be known as Black Friday. Instead, the Canadian government bought a bunch of McDonnell F-101 voodoo interceptors from the US and some missiles. The Arvo company had had almost no advance warning of the government's decision, and just like that, 30,000 Canadians were out of work, losing jobs they thought that they'd have for years. Within two months, all Aero engines, body parts, tools, and technical data were scrapped. What on earth had happened? The official story is twofold. 
First of all, the arrow's combat radius was too small, and so more planes would have been needed to effectively cover Canadian skies. And secondly, the direction of weapons design was moving away from high-speed interceptors. Also, the arrow was just too darned expensive to make. Sure, that all sounds reasonable, but, some whispered while deciding between a crispy chicken sandwich or an Italiano bagel at Tim Hortons, the real reason was because the Arvo Arrow was going to eclipse anything else anyone could bring to the table. The American company Lockheed was already fighting a public relations battle over their F-104 Starfighter, which went into large-scale production in 1958. In many ways, the Starfighter was a heck of a plane, though it had a few problems and would later be dubbed the Widowmaker due to its tendency to turn into a spinning bomb and kill its pilots. This was all talked about in a previous episode. Notably, the Arvo Arrow did not blow up. So the U.S. put pressure on the Canadian government to cancel the Arrow, some said, so they could retain air supremacy. Was it promises of future gains or threats that made the Canadians give in? Different people have different ideas. And a few mavericks out there say the entire Aero program was a cover story for another, more advanced aerospace project that the Americans were developing in Canada. Whatever the truth may be, Arvo Canada closed up shop two years after the Aero was cancelled. While there's no concrete evidence to support any of these conspiracy notions, they continue to persist and have become very much part of Canadian folklore. The legacy of the Arvo Aero program remains a source of national pride for many Canadians, and the cancellation of the program is often viewed as a missed opportunity for Canadian innovation and technological advancement. There is a rather spirited thread on the subject on the Quora website that's worth checking out if you're interested. Link in the episode notes. Give me your money, money, please. please. A 1973 song by Canadian rockers Bachman Turner Overdrive, an offshoot kind of of The Guess Who, which was also a Canadian group. Canadians sure can be a handy bunch and have invented a number of things that make our lives better, such as standard time, peanut butter, the sport of basketball, wireless radio, lines painted on the road, the paint roller, wheelchair-accessible buses, insulin, the pager, the pacemaker, the garbage bag, IMAX cameras, the first internet search engine called Archie, and instant replay in sport matches. And the list goes on and on. There are also many famous people you may not know are Canadians. Hockey great Wayne Gretzky's Canadian, so were magician Doug Henning and the game show host Alex Trebek. Neuroscientist and thinker Steven Pinker is Canadian, and so was conspiracy and psychic debunker James Randi. And despite being born and growing up in South Africa, Elon Musk is a Canadian citizen. He got that through his mother when he was 18. In fact, Canada boasts an impressive number of well-known people in the arts, such as filmmakers James Cameron, David Cronenberg, Norman Jewison, Sidney Newman, one of the creators of the Doctor Who TV show, Ivan and Jason Reitman, and George Romero. Actors Dan Aykroyd, Pamela Anderson, Neve Campbell, Jim Carrey, Hayden Christensen, Michael J. Fox, Ryan Gosling, Evangeline Lilly, Rachel McAdams, Howie Mandel, Mike Myers, Leslie Nielsen, Sandra O, oh, Elliot Page, Anna Paquin, Christopher Plummer, Keanu Reeves, Ryan Reynolds, Seth Rogen, William Shatner, the Shat himself, Martin Short, and Donald and Kiefer Sutherland. 
They also boast an impressive array of musicians. Brian Adams, Paul Anka, Justin Bieber, Michael Bublad, Leonard Cohen, Celine Dion, Drake, Avril Lavigne, Gordon Lightfoot, Sarah McLaughlin, Joni Mitchell, Alanis Morissette, Paul Schaefer, Shania Twain, The Weeknd, and of course, Neil Young. All of these are Canadians, all destined to be reincarnated at a Tim Hortons if they haven't already done so. And all of them know the difference between a loony and a toony. A loony is what Canadians call their $1 coin. Why a loony? Because it has an image of a bird known as a loon on it. A $2 coin, therefore, is known as a Toonie, because rhyming is fun. But you know what isn't fun? The devil. devil. Even though Canada technically got independence from the UK in 1982, they are still part of the Commonwealth, and as part of their independence deal, they agreed to keep the British monarch as their own monarch. Of course, for anti-royalists, this is just unacceptable. Back in 2001, a rumor started making the rounds that some of these anti-royalists had infiltrated the Canadian Mint and snuck an image of the devil's face into the Queen's hair curls on the new Canadian quarters, which is 25 cents. You could totally see it. Look, there, behind her ear, there's the devil. Well, you can kind of see it if you wanted to see it, I guess, though I don't see it. The Mint said the design had been approved by the government and they were unaware of any kind of anti-royalist sentiment in their ranks. Really, this was just a rehashing of a similar rumor from back in 1954 when a new $1 note seemed to show a devil's face in the queen's hair behind her ear. It's really just shadowing and that exact same pattern can be seen in the photograph that the engraving image was taken from. It's a classic example of pareidolia, a phenomenon in which the human brain sees familiar patterns or images in random or abstract shapes. Even some Canadians who didn't think it was an outright act of subversion thought it was funny. Maybe it was a prank or some kind of mild rebellion. Bird, Bird on, the, on wire. the Wire, a 1969 song by the great Canadian singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen. Speaking of queens, there's Romana Dedulo who immigrated to Canada from the Philippines at age 15. Maybe, she seems to be unclear. She tried several business ventures, all of which failed, and then started live streaming and blogging in the early noughties. At one point, she said she was homeless, though still able to live stream somehow. As the 21st century progressed, she started getting into a bunch of sovereign citizen and other pseudo-legal thinking circles, and then she bought heavily into QAnon. In 2020, she seemed to undergo a drastic personality shift, suddenly promoting COVID as a pandemic and claiming that she was the head of a political party called Canada First, which turned out not to actually exist. She said she was a political leader, and then shortly after that, she declared herself, quote, Her Majesty Queen Romana, Commander-in-Chief of the Kingdom of Canada. You see, she'd been put into this lofty position thanks to some help from Americans hiding out in the U.S. government who are working with Q of QAnon fame to thwart the evil international cabal. So she started calling on her followers, more than 60,000 of them on the web, to refuse to pay their taxes or their water or electrical bills and refuse COVID vaccines for themselves and their children. She tried to perform a citizen's arrest on some police in August 2022, which turned into a scuffle and got a few of her people tossed in jail. She has a very active online life, mainly on Telegram, and she also drives around the country in a big van, spreading her expanding mythology and shaking hands. 
It's more recently come out that she's also Queen of Canada because of some alien friends she has. No, not immigrants, aliens, like from space. You see, these creatures first came to Earth 300,000 years ago and have recently returned to Earth to try and stop the international child trafficking ring of satanic cannibals who themselves may or may not be being led by reptilian aliens. Ahem. She continues to ramp up her rhetoric, telling people to destroy COVID vaccines and other, quote, bioweapons, and she announced a, quote, shoot-to-kill policy on anyone who tries to vaccinate a person who is under the age of 19. She said she's setting up military-style tribunals for all the malefactors where any doctor or nurse who has vaccinated people will, quote, receive not one but two bullets in the forehead for each child that you have harmed as a result of injecting this experimental vaccine. The people around her amount to something like a cult, believing every single thing that comes out of her mouth, no matter how wild. This emboldens her, and her anger and wrath can turn on a follower just as easily as it can on the faceless authority figures she targets in her rants. When one follower suggested maybe some of her policies were not terribly productive, like a shoot-to-kill order, she told him that he would be shot in the head and then thrown out of a helicopter. Her followers have become increasingly violent themselves, attacking school officials and teachers in addition to healthcare workers and the police. She also promotes conspiracy theories about the White Helmets. This is a volunteer organization in Syria that provides search and rescue services in areas affected by conflict. They have received praise from many countries and organizations for their humanitarian efforts, including winning the Right Livelihood Award in 2016. Laudable you might think. But some conspiracists claim that the White Helmets are actually aligned with terrorist groups, staging fake rescue operations and getting their funding from Western governments in order to topple the Assad regime in Syria. These theories started coming out of, no surprise, Assad's propaganda wing and then were picked up by Russian media groups and troll farms and disseminated. In Canada, some politicians and media personalities have expressed skepticism about the White Helmets. For example, conservative MP Cheryl Gallant has called for an investigation into the organization, and far-right media outlet Rebel Media has produced several videos criticizing the White Helmets, and of course, Her Majesty Queen Ramana, Commander-in-Chief of the Kingdom of Canada. Ramana has continued to promote her agenda and claim to be the Queen of Canada on social media, but it remains to be seen if she will have any significant impact on Canadian politics or society. Magic, Magic Power. Power That's a 1981 song by Canadian hard rockers, Triumph. Canada is vast. It's the second largest country in the world by size, has the longest coastline of any country, and the longest international border in the world. Way up north, it borders on the international zone that surrounds the geographical North Pole. In so much space, there are bound to be some mysteries. Nova Scotia is home to the infamous Oak Island, subject of rumors about hidden treasure and a reality TV show that is now incredibly in its 10th season, plus a spinoff that had three seasons of its own. One of the most mysterious areas of all is the Nahani Valley up north near where the Northwest Territories, Yukon, and British Columbia all meet, about 500 miles from the town of Yellowknife, which is where actress Margot Kidder was born. Despite being in a subarctic region, there are rumors that the valley contains a subtropical section. No one's actually managed to ever find this, but it does have hot springs that never freeze over. 
The area is filled with legends and many disappearances and strange sightings that occur here are why it is sometimes referred to as Canada's Bermuda Triangle. In 1908, rumors of a gold mine in the valley led brothers Willie and Frank McLeod to Nahani to seek their fortunes. They did not return home and two years later the bodies were found by a group of five prospectors along the banks of the Nahani River that flows through the valley. They had been decapitated and dumped in some sagebrush. Nearby, a gold watch with the initials J.H. was found, as well as a blanket and an Indian rug, and evidence that clothing had been burned. Also in the remains of that fire, they found two human arm bones, two pairs of feet, and one lower jaw. Nine years later, a Swiss man named Martin Jorgensen came to the area, also looking for gold, and soon sent letters to relatives saying that he had struck it rich. Yet he too never returned. His remains would later be found next to what was left of his cabin. The building had been set on fire and he had also been decapitated. In 1927, the skeleton of an outlaw and prospector known as Yukon Fisher was found near where the McLeod brothers had died. He still had valuable gold nuggets on him, so robbery could not have been the motive. The next year, in 1928, prospector Angus Hall set out to find gold and was never heard from again. In 1931, the body of Phil Powers was found burned in the remains of his cabin, which had also been burned. In 1936, two prospectors, Joe Mulholland and Bill Epier, likewise disappeared. Their bodies were never found, but the remains of their cabins were burned to ashes. In 1945, another miner who came to the area also wrote people saying that he had found gold and then no further word was heard. His headless body was later found in his sleeping bag. That same year, a trapper named John O'Brien was found frozen to death, sitting next to a campfire, hands still tightly holding a match that for some reason he had not lit. That's a lot of weirdness for one place, and people started repeating stories that had started back in the mid-1800s about a group of pygmy First Nations people led by a woman. Others spoke of the Naha, a tribe of warriors who were the mortal enemies of the indigenous Dene people who lived in the valley. The name of the river and the valley, Nahani, comes from the Naha people. The Naha were reputed to be cannibals and to worship death. However, no trace of the Naha has ever been found, and so many think that they're just legend. In the 1960s, an entire group of miners went missing from the valley and was never seen again. And the same was true for Albert Fall, who went exploring the valley in 1981 and vanished without a trace. What's going on? Well, the whole area is covered in sinkholes and caves, and it's also pretty remote, so it probably shouldn't be a huge surprise that people sometimes go missing here. There are other strange tales from the Nahani Valley that in 1926, a woman got separated from a hunting party she was part of and eventually was declared lost in the wilds. But local First Nations people recounted tales of seeing her wandering the area, stark naked and seemingly insane. Others said they had seen living mastodons wandering the valley, apparently having survived all these centuries. Still others claimed Sasquatch sightings. Likewise, there have been claims of evil spirits, giant humanoids, a bear dog creature known as a wahila, and a strange short human-like savage with a long beard who carries a club known as the nukluk. The headless bodies and burned cabins are certainly a bit of a mystery, though they may be just gold hunters eliminating rivals. But those decapitations are why the Nahani Valley is sometimes known as the Headless Valley. That is actually the title of a song by Canadian alt-rockers, Crash Test Dummies. While looking at mysteries in Canada, it would be remiss not to take a look at the Shag Harbor UFO incident. 
This took place in 1967, which was a busy year for UFOs in Canada. That was the year Stephen McCulloch got burned by a UFO. He said at Manitoba's Falcon Lake, that incident was talked about in a previous episode about UFOs as possible threats. While out on a hike in July in 67, novelist Warren Smith and two friends saw a shiny disc about three meters tall and 15 meters across moving up and down in the sky. Smith took two pictures before it disappeared and sent them in to the Department of National Defense. That organization analyzed the photos and determined that they were genuine and they had no explanations. Shag Harbor is a small fishing village on the southern coast of Nova Scotia, not far from Bear Point. At 11.20 p.m. on October 4, 1967, something large crashed into the water. Was it of extraterrestrial origin? Earlier, around 7.15 p.m., Captain Pierre Charbonneau, pilot for Air Canada Flight 305, radioed in to nearby Halifax Airport that he saw something strange off his left side, a large rectangular object followed by two smaller lights that was seeming to track his plane from a few miles distance. A couple of minutes later, he and his co-pilot saw what they described as an explosion near the object and then another one that faded into a blue cloud, sort of like smoke maybe. Short while after that radio report, a man sitting on his porch with his mother and his sister in Mahone Bay, about 85 kilometers west and a little bit south of Halifax, saw a large yellow object flying along the horizon to their southwest towards Shag Harbor. A ship's captain, Leo Mercy, said he saw four bright lights in the sky arranged in a kind of a rectangle. A Halifax newspaper, the Chronicle Herald, also fielded numerous phone calls from locals claiming that there was something odd in the sky. A dozen or so people in Shag Harbor would report that a little bit after 11 at night, they'd seen a large object in the sky heading towards the waters of the Gulf of Maine and heard first a low whistling sound, kind of like a bomb approaching, and then a whoosh, and then a loud bang. A few of them went up to higher ground to get a better look and said they saw some kind of wreckage floating in the water about 250 or 300 meters off the coast. With the lights still on, they figured it was some kind of aircraft that had crashed. Responding rapidly, two Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers showed up within 15 minutes of the first report and started organizing a rescue mission. The wreck, however, sank before anyone could get to it. At first, local fishing boats and then later a Canadian Coast Guard vessel searched for survivors or for wreckage, but found neither. No private commercial or military aircraft were reported missing. So what the heck had it been? Because the object's identity was unknown, it was listed as an unidentified flying object a UFO in the most literal sense. And because of this designation, some people started thinking, but UFO means alien spaceship, and so the rumors started flying. But of course, it didn't help matters that nothing was found along the seafloor. Zilch, zip, no wreckage, no bodies, nothing. Today, there is a UFO gazebo and picnic site just up the road from the Shag Harbor Museum where you can crack open a 2-4, which is Canadian slang for a 24-pack of beer, and contemplate the mysteries of life and space. Everything Everything to to Everyone. everyone. That's a 2003 album by Canadian alt-rock jangle pop group Bare Naked Ladies. Another famous UFO case comes from the West Coast, where a man from Duncan on Vancouver Island in British Columbia disappeared. 
Granger Taylor had always been interested in UFOs and the possibility of alien life ever since he'd seen a brightly lit flying saucer descend to hover above the ground in 1969. When he grew up, he became a mechanic and was something of a whiz with machines, making a decent living for himself and working on a number of hobby projects like a replica of the craft the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. Then in 1980, when he was 32 years old, he built a large flying saucer-shaped kind of a thing in the backyard of his family farm. Apparently, he still lived at home with his step-parents, which he would sometimes use as basically a treehouse. Then one night on November 29th, he left a note pinned to his bedroom door. It said, Dear Mother and Father, I have gone away to walk aboard an alien spaceship as recurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return. I'm leaving behind all my possessions, misspelled, to you as I will no longer will require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. On the back of this note was a hand-drawn map that was maybe depicting the area around Waterloo Mountain, about 32 kilometers to the southwest. Well, Granger was nowhere to be found, though his 1972 Datsun pickup truck was also missing, so presumably he'd driven off in it. Friends said he'd been talking for a while in his shy, self-effacing way about aliens and spaceships and how he'd been told in dreams he was going to travel to space soon. He also said he'd learned something about the aliens and, and the way that their vessels moved was somehow related to magnets. He was also known to smoke quite a bit of marijuana and had also taken LSD several times, which would raise the eyebrows of the authorities later. Maybe he was just hallucinating all the time, said people who've never smoked pot or dropped acid. His sister Grace Ann Young thought maybe LSD had fried his brain a little bit. She would tell police that before this, Granger had asked if he could come stay at her place in Vancouver, but she had roommates and said it really wasn't going to work out. It would come out that on that night of November 29th, Linda Barron, who was working in the kitchen of Bob's Grill, said she saw Taylor come in around 6 p.m. and sit at a table. She remembered it well because a very bad storm was coming that night. Local papers would later dub it the storm of the century, so she hadn't really expected many customers. He also was not dressed for the storm. He was wearing only a sweater and jeans, but no coat. He ate, paid, and left a half an hour after he arrived, just as the storm hit Duncan full force. And that was the last anyone saw of Granger Taylor. In his will, he left everything to his step-parents. He had also scratched out all references to death, replacing the word deceased wherever it appeared with the word departed. Five and a half years later, in March 1986, some forestry workers found the remains of a vehicle near Mount Provost, about seven kilometers or so north of Duncan. It looked as if it had exploded, and since some dynamite had gone missing the night Granger disappeared, investigators started thinking that maybe this was his truck. Sure enough, it was, or at least the vehicle registration number matched. Parts of Granger's shirt were also found at the site, as well as some bone fragments that were thought to be human. So, had he planned on killing himself, spinning this alien vacation trip to sort of soften the blow to his family? The night before he disappeared, Granger had had a long talk with his stepdad, thanking him for everything he'd done over the years. Or, did he accidentally blow himself up, maybe while trying to launch himself into space? But he used dynamite all the time to take out tree stumps, so he certainly knew how to handle it. That also didn't seem very likely. Duncan's a pretty small city with a population of around 5,000, and, well, people like to talk. Oh, did you know they found his body hanging from a tree? That's what some said. No, he was kidnapped. No, no, no. He faked his own death and moved to South America. He was a spy. No, he himself was an alien. 
Granger's interest in UFOs and aliens is certainly the part that really tantalizes. And yet, it seems quite clear that somehow the 32-year-old had actually managed to blow himself up. And yet, there are still people who speculate about what really happened. The aliens blew up his truck as a cover story. He went to meet the aliens who'd been telepathically communicating with him, but then he learned they were evil, and he blew them and himself up. He was recruited by the government because of his technical prowess, and this whole thing is a snow job. The cases of both Granger Taylor and Shag Harbor have scant evidence for any kind of UFO connection, but people continue to talk about them in the same breath as Roswell and the now infamous Tic Tac video. Sometimes even the most tenuous connections can get minds a-whirling and tongues a-wagging. This is just a brief sample of some of the many weird things that have gone on in the Great White North, the country that gave us the expressions, his bark is worse than his bite, easier said than done, and laugh all the way to the bank. Famed for very cold winters, ice hockey, maple syrup, and a love of beer. Only 38 million people, but the second largest by area, giving it the 13th lowest population density in the world. It's a great country, routinely on top places to live lists. The people are considered friendly and reasonable, by and large. The landscape is breathtaking. And yet the mysteries there are just as weird as anywhere else. And yes, there are even some nutcases wandering around saying that the mint is hiding images of the devil in the Queen of England's hair, or that they themselves are the Queen of Canada. As Alan Lampy Lamport, former mayor of Toronto in the 50s, and a man famous for his malapropisms, once said, Canada is the greatest nation in this country. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.